Well, good morning, friends. Um, I want to welcome you here. My name is Brad. If we haven't had the chance uh, or the opportunity to meet and say hello to each other yet, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge, and I want to extend my welcome to you as we move into our teaching time, uh, which we do each Sunday morning when we gather. We spend time looking into God's Word, and uh, we're currently in this series teaching through the 18 articles of what we call our Confession of Faith as a Mennonite Brethren Church. So this series is called This We Believe. And so just a a reminder or a primer if you're new with us that when we talk about something like a Confession of Faith, um, this is our articulation of what we understand the Scriptures to teach. And we think that it should do three things. First of all, um, it actually guides and shapes our theological identity. So it's going to say things to us about, is there anything that we as a group of people and Christians here at Jericho believe that might be distinct or slightly different from other traditions within the Christian movement? Secondly, it gives us a lens... Uh, to interpret the scriptures through. It gives us some some handholds to kind of grapple with topics and ideas and issues. And then thirdly, it's a guide for lived discipleship. So if you ever think about, uh, lest we think about a confession as a dry, dead document put together by some people out there somewhere that has nothing to say to us today, what we understand the confession to be doing is giving us a little bit of a roadmap for things that we want to take seriously in our own discipleship and to begin to live in accordance with that. How should we live and the implications for us? So we're into that section in the confession now that talks actually about ethics, about how we live in the world. And so the topics that are coming up as we round the corner and finish out the series by the second week in July is areas like work, a theology of work. What does it mean to actually work and do things in our work lives as unto the Lord? Uh, We're going to talk about things like creation care next week and stewardship Uh, ecological stewardship. We're going to talk about politics. What does it look like for Christians and what should our engagement be or maybe not be with political spheres and then the sanctity of human life. So just a few small, easy-to-handle topics over the course of the next number of weeks. Uh, But these are the places where actually our theology and our lived experience of Scripture touch one another and we actually need to talk and think carefully about these things. And, and I also want to say that these are areas and articles then where uh, they're not always things that we've spoken of well in the church. And, and these are also things that are uncomfortable to speak about in some ways. And so we've arrived at one of those topics here today as we press into Article 11, which is an article on marriage, singleness, and family. And so before we go any further, I want to make just a couple of pre comments. Uh, And first, just a content warning when, uh, in particular, this article talks uh, about sex. And so you'll need to exercise age-appropriate discernment 
uh, in terms of, uh, because the, the text itself that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians brings up a few topics uh, around this. And so, um, just be aware and attentive to that. And secondly, I'm going to do a little bit of a different style of preaching than I normally do. And that is that I'm going to, instead of oftentimes we'll, we'll go through verses and then we'll pause and make a few comments or um, experience a few and dig down a little bit. I'm going to read a longer section of scripture, and what I would like you to do is pay attention to the themes that come up in the scripture, and then I'm going to ask for your input. What are the themes that you see uh, in the text in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, as opposed to drilling down into specific verses? And then the third thing that I want to say is that this article in particular is creating the most conflict that we have had in our denomination uh, in decades and decades. And, and so this is an area of challenge uh, for us as a denominational family. And uh, I want to say that there are whole topics within this article that I'm not going to be able to cover off on today. And I want to just signal for you that that is not because I'm not aware of them or that, they are, or that I'm not avoiding them because they create conflict or, or they are challenging. Um, I, I think I want you to know that when it comes to discussions of a complex nature, oftentimes those need to be dialogical where you can say, hold on a minute, what do you mean by that? Can you explain that word? Uh, there seems to be a lot of baggage with that phrase. I think I mean this by that, what do you mean by that? And so a sermon format is not a great format, especially only a 20-25 minute sermon, is not a great format for that kind of conversation, uh, and it can only be expected to carry so much freight. So I just want to signal up front that to answer all kinds of questions, like this article attempts to answer questions, what does the Bible say about parenting, what does the Bible say about singleness, and what does the Bible say about marriage? And so to do all of those on one Sunday is too much for any pastor, especially one like your pastor who has a difficulty being brief when it comes to topics. So I want you to hear both today what I am saying and also what I am not saying this morning. So I am intentionally not going to speak on a number of things that come up in this text. So one of the things is uh, divorce and remarriage. I'm intentionally going to avoid a discussion uh, that comes up in this text on same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, gender dysphoria, LGBTQ plus inclusion, and I am not avoiding them because this church is a place that can't handle those types of conversations. Quite the opposite, in fact. I want to acknowledge that Jericho is a place that can have and has a good history of having hard and challenging conversations together. Uh, part of the recognition of the limitation is just saying that sermons are good at some things and not good at other things. And so on items like gender minorities and sexual minorities, uh, we're talking not merely about concepts or theology, but complex lives and experiences of real people. And so we need to dig deeper, and we need to choose a better format than a one-way, 25-minute sermon will allow for conversations. So I want to make this comment uh, and this is the last pre-comment, and that is I want to let you know that as elders at our retreat uh, last weekend, 
we spend time each year prayerfully discerning and discussing together what are the things that we need to do and put in front of us as a faith community in this coming year. And so one of the things that we decided is that one of our goals in the coming year is to lead us as a faith family through a healthy, safe, constructive, equipping journey that will include frank and open conversations about gender and about sexuality. And so we are signaling to you that we are going on a learning journey together. And we're going to do this in community. And we are going to be asking you to do some heavy lifting as well as some heavy listening on a topic that we are not historically good at talking about as evangelical churches. And we're especially not very good at listening as evangelical churches. But as we have worked over the course of the last two years as elders, having conversations about this topic, we have become convinced and convicted that the church's silence is not helping. It's not helping us follow Jesus well and love and listen well. It's not helping our LGBTQIA plus friends who are part of us. And so as an elders team, we have been intentional on our learning journey. And then in the course of this summer, we're going to spend time shaping up a conversational framework. Uh, and then we will be leading us forward together in 2023 so that we can all together learn to love and to listen well. So that is uh, the sound of your pastor's inbox lighting up right now. And I want to just signal that to you, that we are, we are prayerfully working through a discernment process, and we're going to engage uh, in that as a community, and we're calling everyone to join us in that. So in order to have those conversations, there are some conversations that we need to have before that, and this is one of them this morning on the topic of singleness and on the topic of marriage. And one of the most extensive treatments of this in the New Testament happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, I want to invite you to turn there. And again, I'm going to read through a bigger chunk of this text. And then uh, you're looking for themes in this, and we'll invite some of your feedback on that. And then we're going to talk about themes that we see and then three postures to take based on on those themes. So just as we dive into this text, just a, a context reminder statement, this is a letter uh, written to a real group of first century followers of Jesus in an ancient city called Corinth. And uh, this group had written back and forth to Paul, who was one of the early leaders in the first century Christian movement. And they had lots of questions for Paul. And this was a group in Corinth that was really out to lunch on a lot of things a lot of the time. And so oftentimes, Paul's tone in 1 Corinthians has a corrective tone to it because he's saying, gang, I can't believe that you're on about that. Are you really thinking that's a thing that would be a good for your public witness as a follower of Jesus? And so he's just finished telling them off at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because in amongst the church community, there's a man who's having sexual relationship with his father's wife, and he's quite proud of this, and no one's saying anything to him about it. And so Paul says, that's, that's not, that we, we have to talk about this. And then in chapter 6, Paul says, gang, 
You, have, you keep taking each other in these frivolous lawsuits to court in public spaces against one another in the church, and, and the name of Jesus is being dragged through the mud as a result of this. You've got to cut that out. And so then, in, as he goes on in chapter 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 9, and then we're going to pick up in chapter 7 as in the message translation, uh, which is, again, a translation I don't normally read from, but I want you to just listen for the themes and not get hung up on specific words that you might be familiar with. So, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, some of the passage will come up on the screen. Paul says this, Don't you realize this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in God's kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, they don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. And a number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Since then, you've been, like we sang about, cleaned up. You've been given a fresh start by Jesus, our Master, our Messiah, and by our God present in us, the Spirit. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing everything that I thought I could get away with, I would be a slave to my own whims. You know the old saying, he's referencing a cultural saying here, first you eat to live, then you live to eat. Well, it may be true, that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for just stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master, God, honors you with a body, honor God with your body. Because there is more to sex than physical skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as physical fact, as it is written in the scripture, quote, the two become one. He's referencing the Old Testament. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. That kind of sex that can never actually help you become one. There is a sense in which sexual sin is different from other sins, In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given, God-modeled love, for becoming one with another person. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of squandering what God paid such a high price for? Remember, the physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, getting down to the questions that you asked in your letter. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife, for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not the place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other whether in bed or out. 
So abstaining from sex is permissible, permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and if it's for the purpose of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again because Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not understand commanding these periods of abstinence. I'm only providing my best counsel if you should so choose them. Sometimes, Paul says, I wish everyone were single like me. It's a simpler life in many ways. But the single life or celibacy's chosen singleness is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. God, not your marital status, defines your life. All of you were once held hostage in sinful society, and then a huge sum was paid out for your ransom. So please, please don't, out of old habit, slip back into being or doing what other people tell you. Friends, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with God at your side. I want you, Paul says, to live as free of complications as possible. And when you're unmarried, you're free to concentrate on simply pleasing God. Marriage involves you in the nuts and bolts of domestic life and in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands on your attention and time. The time and energy married people spend on caring for and nurturing one another, unmarried can spend on becoming whole and holy instruments of God. So I'm trying to be helpful and make it as easy as possible for you, not trying to make things harder. All I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with God without a lot of distractions. So marriage, he finishes by saying, is spiritually and morally right and not inferior to singleness in any way, Although, as I indicated earlier, because of the times we live in, I do have pastoral concerns for encouraging singleness. So, that is a lot to absorb the things that Paul is driving at in this text. So, let's just pause and say, what were some of the themes that you heard in that text? Shout them out. Both are a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Unselfishness. Unselfishness. Yeah, absolutely. What else? God is always first. first. Yeah, yeah. What else? Mutual submittedness. Mutual submission. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Sorry, say again. Purity and God defining who you are. Yeah. Absolutely. What else? Those are great. Sorry? Identities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are a lot of themes that are running both underground in this text and then that come bubbling to the surface in this text. And so it is a lot to absorb. So I'm going to talk about just two of the themes that come up over and over again in this. And the first one is this. Bodies matter. Our bodies matter. Over and over again in these chapters, the text gets very specific and very focused on our bodies and what we do with and in our bodies. And one of the interesting pieces in evangelicalism in a Christ, as a part of the Christian tradition is the evangelical 
dynamic is often most concerned with our brains and what we think. And I know that I live in my head a lot, and so I like to imagine sometimes that right thinking will save the world. But unfortunately, this is not the case, and it's not what Scripture teaches us. We are embodied people, and our spirituality is also an embodied spirituality. And this passage, as one of many, calls us back to that time and time and time again. We are not mere brains on a stick. We have to think about how we experience our faith and our relationship with God and others in and through our bodies. So in one of our recent publications that our National Faith and Life team put out, they said about Article 11, they said it this way, quote, we believe that all humans are created in the image of God. And this bestows inestimable value and divine responsibility and an embodied relational drive upon each person. That phrase, I think, is helpful. An embodied relational drive. Our bodies matter. All of us has a body, and what we do with our bodies matters. And, and Paul here in this text is linking this to the notion of the fact that we are image bearers of God. And this means that any kind of artificial dichotomy between our bodies and our brains is just that. It's artificial. It also means that with great power comes great responsibility. And so because we have been given a body, we are responsible to steward that which we have been given. We are imaging God to the world, and we have a divine responsibility to relate well to God, to relate well to other people, to relate well to creation, we'll talk about that next week, and to relate well to ourselves and our own bodies. The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part, Paul says, God owns the whole works, so let people see God in and through your body. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture and is picked out here in a helpful way for us to understand the next part. And it was one of the themes that you picked up on. And that is this, theme number two, core identity over current status. And what I mean by this is that the most important thing about you is not actually your current status in your life. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're gay, whether you're cisgendered, whether you're non-binary, the most important thing about you is your identity to and relationship with Christ. And this is a theme that's really struck me in my readings over the last number of months of my own personal daily scripture intake because I'm finding that as I go into the scripture and as I read, I'm finding a ton of things that I have elevated within my own sense of identity or current status that I've made bigger in my life than God intends them to be. And in 
the language of the Scriptures, we would call that idolatry. You've elevated something up to a place that it cannot bear, and it sometimes takes a place above what God intends for it to be. And, and in contemporary suburban North American culture, we have made an idol, and we have elevated marriage and sex beyond the place that I think God has given them to us. But whether you have sex or not, and who you have sex with or not, are actually not the most important things about you. There's an incredibly rich tradition in the scriptures of singleness, single people. Jeremiah, never married, incredibly powerful witness that his non-marriage, his choice not to be married, had in the life of not only his own relationships, but, the, but he was able to bear witness to a whole nation and change some of the course of history as a result of his commitment to staying single. Paul. Paul speaks here and in other places about the sense of, of singleness as a calling, that he felt that on his life. And talking to many of uh, individuals here in the life who are of Jericho, some of you are single as a, mer- as a status and say, I do not share Paul's opinion on a calling to that. I don't want to be called to that. And that's a challenging place to find yourself in. And we want to recognize that. And we want to know you to know that that is a challenge sometimes when we elevate marriage as the goal of your life, that sometimes inadvertently even subtle conversations are pushing you toward that, even if you may want it, and even if it may not be a current reality for you. And that's a challenge, and so we want to apologize if we've elevated marriage in the life of Jericho to a place where as a single adult you feel excluded in some way. Jesus never married. There's many people in the Scriptures who followed God faithfully, who lived an incredibly rich and fulfilling life, and who were never sexually intimate with another person. And the text reminds us, though, of why this is such a challenge. And it's because of that first theme. It's because we are embodied people. And it is because we are relationally wired as human beings. And so living out a relational drive without activating a sexual drive is a challenging thing for us. Purity was one of the themes that that somebody mentioned in this. And purity whether you're heterosexual or not, is a real challenge. But one of the things that I think is useful for us to remind ourselves in this text and other places is that having sex is not a divine right. And despite what the plots of most novels and romantic comedies indicates, you can have a deeply fulfilling life that is relational and does not include a sexual element to it. And so I want to, again, remind us to hold up and defend that possibility for people here in the life of Jericho Ridge and in the spheres in which you find yourself because it is a challenging reality. And many of those who got married younger in life and who have had a fulfilling marriage relationship sometimes just lose that, and and we don't always do a good job of of understanding and loving well 
are those who are in a state of singleness. And so we want to apologize for that and think of more creative and holy and God-honoring ways to press through and into that. And then a word, too, for some of you who have become single again and just the pain that that is in your lives. We want to recognize that and just acknowledge that that, too, is a very difficult and challenging journey to walk out because you have found yourself in both states, a state of marriage and a state of singleness. And we have this default bent in our world that your journey will end in marriage. And that means then somehow magically that you get the Christian green light for sex. But I love what author and Pastor Bruce Miller reminds us uh, in his book, and I would commend this book to you. It's one that we've, as a staff team and elders team, read, uh, Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning. And he says this, quote, Sex is a good gift, but it is not essential for a good life. I think it's something we lose sight of and we need to bring to our attention again. Here at Jericho, we, we have many people who live a fulfilling and rich and wonderful life despite their marital status. So your status is not the most important thing about you, nor is how you identify, but your identity is in and your relationship to Christ is the most important thing about you. And we have to think about the lived implications of this in our own lives. And so as we do that, there's three postures that I want to invite us to get ready to move into as we have a challenging conversation over the course of the next year. And the first one is a posture of kneeling. A posture of kneeling. It's actually a posture of confession. And in the Christian tradition, one of the reasons that we take a posture of kneeling or might take a posture of kneeling is a recognition of confession, of something that's been done that is wrong, of something that is out of alignment, of something that we want to say, I'm sorry for. And so the first posture that I would invite us to take in this journey is a journey of kneeling, a posture of confession. And part of the reason for that posture is that we need to start any conversation that's challenging with ourselves, looking inward. Because here's the truth that resonates throughout all of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and elsewhere, and that is that we are all tainted. We are all sinners. We have all sinned, and on top of that, all of us are probably sexual sinners in some way. And see, we like in the Christian tradition to pick on certain sins, public sins, and sexual sins are easier sins to pick on. And granted, Paul does note in the text that there is a sense in which sexual sins are different from other sins, because in sexual sins, we are violating the sacredness of our own bodies. But all of us have done things or thought things in this way and sinned in this area. Who among us has not used sex as a tool 
to get what we want, either withholding it, like Paul talks about here, or giving it in some way. Who among us has not had thoughts of lust toward people to whom we are not married? And so, the thing that I want to remind us about is that we need to start in a place of repentance and say, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And only after we have that kind of a conversation with ourselves and with God can we go to the second posture, and that is a posture of arms extended. This is a posture of loving care, a desire to listen, a desire to help authentically, and a desire to share truth gently. And I love how Paul does this in his conversation with this group in Corinth, in his letter to them. He starts out, first of all, by sharing his life with them. He was the one that actually was a part of their life and their journey. And so he has relational equity and history with them. And then when they write him with questions about it, he listens to their queries, their concerns, and he steps into that place with loving advice, which is also corrective, But he does this from this posture, this place of saying, gang, I I really want to help you see some things in your own life that may be holding up and, and creating a poor witness and are actually harming you in some ways. And so he wants for them to experience, if you read the first part of the letter, all of the goodness of God, all of the grace of God, all of the freedom that comes from walking according to God's uh, ways. And, and he wants to call them back to the sense of, of community as well, the sense of deep fulfillment and joy that can be found in Christian community. And so he extends his arms toward them in a posture of care and says, listen, even at a distance, I want to express that for you. And even when he's correcting them, he's in that mode. So that's our second posture. First one, a posture of confession and kneeling. Second one, a posture of loving care, arms extended. Third posture, a posture of sitting attentively. A posture of sharing. A posture of working hard to understand and have conversations and understanding the life goals and stories with those whom you're in conversation with. And this is, friends, one of the mistakes that Christians often make in conversations on sex and gender. They rush out into the world asking people who do not share their convictions on Jesus or share a commitment to Christian ethics to somehow share that view on human sexuality. And this isn't wise or helpful because especially when you've skipped postures one and postures two. It's been my experience that oftentimes you will have the opportunity to share your convictions if you sit attentively and are listening both to the story of the person who's in front of you and to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But I think Paul is right when he is, and this is what he's driving at, when he says to them, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. 
When was the last time as a Christian you heard them rushing out into the world to declare the spiritual mystery of sexuality as opposed to a stated set of convictions? And I think we need to pause and ask ourselves things like, can this be communicated well if we just write a position paper and put it out there into the world? Or just quoting six scripture verses at people, or reverting to simplistic but often dismissive summary statements. And I want to make sure that we're clear and communicate to you as we move into these conversations that that's not how we're going to do things around here at Jericho. That's not who we are. Our commitment is to a posture of attentive listening to what the triune God is saying to us in and through the scriptures about the topic of sex, marriage, and singleness, and to what the Spirit is saying to us as a community who seeks to bear faithful witness in our generation, in our cultural context, and to listen well to one another, even when we come to places of difficulty and we explore different convictions and experiences that we've had along the way or when others rub us the wrong way. And this is going to push and challenge all of us. So as we wrap up this part of what is going to be a long conversation, let me ask you two questions for personal reflection. And these are both short and long-term questions. And I'll invite the worship team to come up and we will prepare to also respond in worship and song. The first question is this, what script or what stories do I tell myself or others about what it means to have a quote-unquote good life? See, all of our cultures, all of our personal backgrounds influence what we think our goals and objectives are in our lives. And then Oftentimes, we just don't pay attention as clearly to some of the things that the Scripture challenges about our, or wants to reshape about our ideas. And so, we might need to prepare and ready ourselves to have a differing posture, a different conversation about what it means to be single, what it means to be married, what it means to be a good parent. Because we often, if you're like me, Tell myself, I tell myself like, well, things will be better when dot, dot, dot. Or I'll be really happy if dot, dot, dot. Or my own temptation journey will diminish when dot, dot, dot. But the call to holiness, the call to live like Jesus, where is a call to start with where you're at right now, not some future imagined state. You might have to change your mind about some things. You might have to get over how the church, capital C, or even this church, meaning people in this church, have treated you or spoken to you or about you. You may have to apologize as a person for some wrong thinking or wrong goals or wrong actions or specific conversations that you've had with people that the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind and say, you know what, you were too harsh in that you did not love well, you didn't lead from the right posture. And we invite you to act on that then. Go to that person and say, I'm sorry. When I said those things, um, I, I need to apologize and repent of that. 
So what is the script that we tell ourselves about what it means to have a good life and how might the scriptures challenge or reshape that? Second and final question is, what are some potential blind spots in my own learning journey or circles of friendship? And what are actions that I might need to do to practice radical, self-sacrificial love that we are called to? And some of this just has to do with how you organize and plan your life. So, for example, if you are a person who's married, what involvement in your life and in your home and in the web of your family relationships do you have for single adults? Because sometimes what can happen is, as married people, you only hang out and connect with married people. One of the things you'll notice is when we set up chairs in, in a circle around a table here at Jericho Ridge, we always set up an odd number of chairs. And the reason for that is we do not want to communicate that everyone who's coming into the space is coupled in some way. We want to make space in small and in big ways for our singles here at Jericho Ridge. And so what does it look like for you as a family, for you as a person to make space for people in your relational world who are single? I have a friend who's single and he's lonely and so I call him every week and we spend at least a half hour on the phone just saying, how you doing? What's going on with your life? How can we support one another and pray for each other in this journey? We try and make space for single people at our dinner table as we can. What does that look like for you? Because you need to recognize it's harder in suburbia for people to be single than it is in a space like Vancouver where there's more single adults. And so we as a church have a role to kind of keep reminding ourselves and keep paying attention that it's, we have blind spots in this area and we need to keep open to and relate well to our single friends and singles among us in a healthy way. And the same thing is true for those who are gender or sexual minorities. Are they in your circle of friendship? Are you a trusted person who can walk with them and who can speak into their life in a way that is full of truth and grace? I'm going to pray for us as we start into this conversation. And we're going to spend some time uh, just worshiping in song. And I just invite uh, you to let God speak to you in this time. Let God speak to you about your presuppositions and your assumptions. And let God speak and bring any corrective actions or attitudes that God might want to bring. So let's pray together. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pause in this day, in this moment, to acknowledge that you are the one to whom we desire to be in right relationship with. And so I pray particularly for anybody who is here this morning for whom that's a new idea, that the God of the universe would know you and call you by name. I pray, God, that you would just stir in their souls that sense of warmth and invitation to say yes to you. We pray that this would be the day, Father, that they would say yes. And so if that's you, we've got our prayer team that's available at the back this morning. That's going to be Gary. Uh, that's going to be um, uh, Anne-Marie. And that's going to be James. And any of those three people would just love to have a conversation with you about what it means to be in a relationship with the God of all creation. God, I pray also today specifically for 
each of us, if there's any areas of block or any areas of dissonance in our own personal relationship with you. I pray, God, that you just make clear to us those places where we have thoughts, attitudes, actions, things done or left undone that you want to speak to us about today. Attitudes we've harbored in our hearts. Thoughts, words that we've spoken. We want to take a posture of repentance and confession and offer ourselves again to you and say, God, we are here as individuals and as a community, and we desire to be used by you. We desire to be filled by you. We desire to be your hands and your feet to love well in this world, and we cannot do that without the indwelling power and presence of your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring conviction. Bring empowerment for work and for ministry in the world. 